0: The subject that I've been given tonight, uh, we were all given subjects for this summer, is declared righteous or justification. And the text that I was given is Romans 3, 21 through 28. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 3, and we'll start reading with verse 21. Romans 3, 21 through 28. whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance or patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. May we pray. Our Father, as we study tonight such a key part of our doctrinal position, our philosophy of ministry, Lord, give us insight into this great justification by faith, being declared righteous. Lord, may we glean something from tonight. And from the scripture and from the what is presented that might encourage us and might lead us to a better understanding of the total gospel and how it can affect and bring changed lives. We commit our time of study to you in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to go back with me uh, a few years ago uh, to the state of Kansas where I'm from uh, to a courthouse. Uh, just outside of Lansing Prison. Lansing is the state prison in Kansas. And by the way, the the federal prison is about three miles away, Leavenworth. We're talking about Lansing Prison and a courthouse just outside of it, and two men are before the judge waiting for the jury's verdict. Their name is Richard Hickok and Perry Lee Smith. And they stand before the judge because they had violated and committed four murders in what Truman Capote called In Cold Blood. You seen the movie? Have you read the book? It's about these men and this story. See, they were in Lansing Prison, Hickok and Smith. Hickok, because I happen to know him, My brother and him were in school together in a little town of Edgerton, Kansas, with a high school of 22. Can you imagine a high school with an enrollment of 22? Well, Hickok and my brother played football together. And I knew from my brother that Hickok was in for forgery, for writing bad checks. And it was there that he would meet Perry Lee Smith. And they would develop a relationship. And while they were in jail, in in prison, they met another guy. This guy was also an inmate, and uh, he had happened to work for a farmer west of Garden City, Kansas, which is all the way out west, almost to Colorado. This gentleman had worked for a farmer by the name of Clutter. And uh, he worked there a couple days, and he told Smith and Hickok that he had huge sums of money that he kept in his house to pay for the workers who worked for him there. And uh, he knew because he'd worked there and was paid from that, and he had thousands and thousands of dollars. So from that, a scheme was hatched that once they were dismissed or let out of prison, they were going to go get that money. And so it happened, and Hickok and Smith drove out to Garden City, out to Holcomb, Kansas, got there... Toward the evening of that particular day, and uh, it was in the winter time, it was dark, and the clutters, father, wife, uh, husband, and a son and a daughter, four of them, had finished and were in, in the living room listening to Kansas State basketball on WIBW. Hickok and Smith broke in. Asked for the money. They said they had none. And uh, so they took the women upstairs to the bedroom and tied them both up. And then took the father and the son to the basement and tied them up and kept demanding the money. Hours had passed now. We're into two or three hours, and they had not received the money. So Dick Hickok and Perry Lee Smith went upstairs, raped, and then with a shotgun shot the two women in the head. They went down to the basement and gave the men one more chance. Give us the money. And they didn't, because they didn't have it, and so they shot them in the head. And in the book and in the movie, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie, it is stated that Hickok and Smith are on their hands and knees in the bedroom, grabbing for silver dollars. The total take for Four murders was 18 silver dollars. So here stands Hickok and and Smith. And of course, they realize that they're doomed to be condemned by the law. And of course, they are found guilty by the jury. Four counts of murder, one, and their sentence was hanging. And they were unable to present any kind of defense. They were guilty. Now, I think it's quite obvious that we've not committed murder here tonight, none of us. But I trust this true story will help us to somewhat understand the legal predicament that all of us are under. Why? Because humanity has a huge problem. And whether we be religious or non-religious, whether we be Jew or Gentile, Whether we be believer or atheist, everyone must stand before God's throne for judgment. Where the standard for justice is perfection. Be perfect as I am perfect, God has said. Our problem, the problem of all humanity, is sin. We're guilty sinners who belong to a guilty race. And we deserve nothing but God's wrath and his condemnation. And there's no chance, there's absolutely no chance that we can be accepted for anything that we can conjure up. Anything that we think we can do. And You know, this is not a trial where you're innocent until you're proven guilty. This is different. This is a trial in which we've already been proven to be guilty. And we'll remain guilty unless there's a way that we can be declared. Righteous in God's sight. Sin's a complex problem. And the only solution that can come is through a righteous relationship with our God. Sin brings bondage. And salvation purchases our redemption out of the slave market of sin. Sin brings alienation. Yet salvation can reconcile us to God. Sin brings wrath, the wrath of God. But salvation propitiates or satisfies the anger of God. And sin leads to death, death which we deserve. But salvation raises us to eternal life. Now tonight, I want to add justification to that list. Because where sin brings us under condemnation, salvation justifies us before our righteous judge. I think you all know that justification is one of the central themes of Scripture. Central. Very central. Very important. And very much a key. And you've got important terms like propitiation, and reconciliation, redemption. And they're important. They're wonderful terms. And they're mentioned a couple times, a handful of times in the New Testament. But you contrast the forms of justification and you'll find it to appear over 200 times. In the scriptures, justification is an important part of your faith and my faith, a very important part of the gospel. The centrality of justification was recognized by many theologians, past and present. It was John Calvin who said, Justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. And Thomas Cranmer, an English reformer not well known, said whoever would deny it should not be counted as a true Christian man, anyone who would deny justification. But that person should be called an adversary of Christ. Martin Luther, probably the most famous, said justification defends the church of God. And without justification, the church of God cannot exist, even for one hour. It's a chief article of our Christian doctrine. There's no salvation without it. And justification answers the big question, the huge question, the fundamental question. How can a sinful human being be righteous before a holy God? The answer lies in the doctrine and teaching of justification. So let's define justification and start out by contrasting it with the opposite. And the opposite of justification would be condemnation. Condemnation is to declare a person unrighteous and guilty. That person's action may make him guilty, and when he's finally condemned, the court simply pronounces him to be what he is. That was Hickok and Smith. That's what they were. Guilty of murder. Justification is the opposite of condemnation, and to justify is to pronounce a verdict Of innocence. You're innocent. You're not guilty. You're pardoned. And you're not just made right. Hear that. You're not just made right in justification. Because frankly God doesn't need you. But in justification you are declared. You are declared to be righteous before a holy God. You might wonder where the what the source of justification is. The source is God's abundant, free grace. And I don't think anyone in here, uh, I think all of you realize, that justification by grace is far more than any of us deserve. It's been called an act of God's unmerited favor. No man by his own deed is justified before a righteous God. And salvation's message states that God offers righteousness to sinners as a gift. Absolutely as a gift. Because it is God who justifies. So if the source of justification is God's free grace, what's the source or who is the source of righteousness? God would be that source. God would be the originator. And God is the source of that righteousness that's bestowed upon you and I as a sinner. People have asked the question, kind of a twofold question, many times Does this righteousness that we're talking about belong to God or does it come from God to us as a gift? The answer to that dual question is yes to both. Because certainly the righteousness of God is a righteousness he possesses. That was Paul's argument. Even when God justifies sinner, God still preserves his own righteousness. He doesn't lose it or give it away because we are declared to be righteous. And Paul also said, it's a gift. It's a gift righteousness that's outside of you and me. Luther called it alien righteousness. And Luther meant by alien righteousness is that it's righteousness outside of us. It's not in us. It comes from somewhere outside of us. And please, my friends, never forget that the righteousness He grants to us comes by virtue of the fact that we are in union. We are in union with Jesus Christ. We are in union with Him. I know we all know this, but when Jesus died on the cross, He was treated like a condemned criminal. The Romans were vicious. The Romans used crucifixion, which is the lowest, was the lowest of all sentences. You had to be a traitor or you had to be a murderer to be crucified. And Jesus was neither. Neither had he committed any sin. Yet God permitted him to be crucified in order to take away your sin. And my sin. What happened was this God, our God, imputed our sin to Christ. And I want to talk about imputation just a little bit because I think imputation has a big connection with justification. It's very important. They do connect and they're important. To impute means to credit something to someone's account. Oh, isn't it wonderful if somebody imputes some money into your bank account? To impute is to credit something to someone's account. But I want us to look at three examples of imputation that are in the Scriptures. The last two deal with justification. The first one, the first imputation, is actually how you and I became sinners. Did you know that? Became sinners by imputation. Because in Romans 5, it tells us Adam's sin was credited to my account and to your account. And by the imputation of Adam's sin, we're reckoned. We're reckoned to be sinners. That's one imputation. Now the imputation that deals with our subject tonight. The imputation of our sin placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfectly righteous, yet He died a sinner's death. We've already said that. How could God allow that to happen? It comes through imputation. You see, God removed our sin and by imputation credited it to Christ's account. As He bore our iniquity, was condemned to die, He did that not for His sin, But for our sin, God made him to be sin for us, even though he knew no sin. But Christ's death is not the end of imputation. There is another. And the third imputation is if we're to be justified, it is not enough for our sins to be placed or imputed upon Christ, but his righteousness needs to be imputed to us. And then, and only then, can God declare that we're righteous, righteous, and that we're justified. You see, the message of salvation offers a righteousness from God that flows from God's grace on the basis of God's work imputed to a sinner through the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you know that our pastor, Dr. Young, and Susie were witnessed to by G. James Kennedy down in Florida when he was working for Procter & Gamble. G. James Kennedy is the innovator of of the, uh, the gospel explosion. Somebody, E.E., Evangelism Explosion. He's the innovator of Evangelism Explosion, excuse me. And he's the one who went to their door. He's the one who went to their house. And they first heard the gospel through him. And I've often wondered, well, then is G. James Kennedy the one that developed that illustration about justification that many of us have come to know and love? And when I was doing this research, I came to realize that like everything else, he got it from somebody too. And I think I've come to the source of that illustration on evangelism explosion. And it's Donald Gray Barnhouse. That name ring a bell to anybody? He was one of the great preachers of years gone by. And in the research, I came upon Gray Barnhouse saying and explaining how he had first heard this illustration about justification. Some of you have heard it. Some of it, For some of you, it will be the first time tonight. I tell you, it's a beautiful illustration. It's a wonderful way to share the gospel and the story of justification. So I'm going to try to do what Barnhouse learned and what G. James Kennedy picked up and what your pastor heard. Years and years ago, that would eventually lead him and Susie to trust Christ as Savior and to be where He is today. The story goes this way that this hand represents me and all of my sin. That sin that God hates. That sin that's all over me, it's all here. My sin. In fact, I'm going to say this book represents every one of them. Every sin that Jeff Simons has committed is located in this book. It's written here. And this hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sinless, who has committed no sins, who was absolutely perfect. God must have loved him. He did. Certainly he did. Because he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in this illustration on justification, we have a transaction or an exchange that will blow a person's mind once they understand it and lead them to an understanding of the gospel and justification. Because the scripture says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have gone, every one, our own way. But God has laid on him the sins of us all. And how did he do it? Imputation. He placed our sins on the sinless. And we are pardoned. We are acquitted. We are set free. But that's not the end. That's the first part. There is a second part to this story. And that second part is this. That at the same time that God was imputing our sins to Christ putting the burden of our sin on Him, He was also imputing Christ's righteousness to us. So I take the second book. That book is the Bible. That book represents perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. By the way, we have none. But when He imputed the righteousness to us, we became as righteous as his dear son. Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and now we are righteous before him. The message of justification. The much message of declared righteousness. What a gospel we have. What a wonderful gospel we have. Kipling was a writer, and he wrote a very intriguing little phrase that I love, and I want to use it here with you just for a moment. Kipling said this, I have six honest, serving men. They have taught me everything I know. Their names are what and why and how, and when and where and who. Let's summarize Justification in answering those six questions about it. The what, the why, the how, the when, the where, and who of justification. What's justification? It's instantaneous. It's a legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness to belong to us. Why do we need justification? Because it was the thrice-holy God's plan to complete salvation. Do you realize that's all the plan we needed? The thrice-holy God provided that for us. That's why we need justification, because God says so. How does justification take place? Through that transaction. Through that transfer. Where we lay our sins upon Christ through imputation, and Christ takes his righteousness and places it upon us. That's how it takes place, through the great transaction. When does justification take place? And it's, it's difficult to put a timetable on, on the process of salvation. But I'm going to say that it happens after saving faith, justification. After saving faith, as God's response to saving faith. Happens after saving faith as a response to God's saving faith. I've heard Jimmy say this many times. Don't mix up faith and have faith in faith. You've got to be careful. I'm not talking about faith in faith to obtain favor with God. I'm talking about saving faith. Have you ever wondered why God chose faith to be the attitude of the heart by which we would obtain justification? Well, I think it's because faith is one attitude of the, of the heart that's exactly the opposite of depending upon ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we say, I give up. I have no answers. I can't do it. I have nothing within me that you need. I need you, God. I'll never make myself righteous before a holy God. And Jesus says, I trust you. You to give me righteous standing before God. We say that to to Jesus. I trust you to give me righteous standing before him. That's the win. Where does this justification take place? And you might be surprised that the resurrection of Jesus establishes the doctrine that all who believe in Christ are justified from all sin. You want proof? Look at Romans 4.25 sometime where it says, Jesus was put to death because we had transgressed. And he was raised because we've been justified. In resurrection, God declares that he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for human sin. I want to close with this. And I want you to permit me. I've, most of you know that I've been involved in basketball. Still am in Central America, as I take coaches and people with me there to, to evangelize through basketball, I want to compare basketball to the gospel. Now, isn't that a weird comparison? To compare basketball to the gospel. And what I want to talk about is those times as Christians where we go through a law. Where we go through uh, we're dry. You ever been there as a Christian when you're dry? You just can't get to going, you just seem to seem to be spinning your wheels and you, you can't accomplish anything and, and you don't know exactly why. God has not brought any sin before you that you need necessarily to confess, but you're just you're in a rut in your Christianity and in your in your acting out the gospel. I want to compare that to basketball. As both a player and a coach, I went through the same thing in basketball. There's every year, there'd come a time in the season where things just didn't click. And you just couldn't, you couldn't get to going as a team, both as a player and a coach. And the conclusion that I reached and was taught was that I had to go back to the basics. We call this in basketball The fundamentals. Mark, you know what I'm talking about. We had to go back to the fundamentals. And so when we had a three or four day gap between games, and everybody likes to go out there and scrimmage and and practice and play games, you know that, Bill. The coach, and when I was a coach, we wouldn't do that for this three or four day period. We would go two hours and two and a half hours on basic fundamentals. How do you pivot? How do you pass? What's the execution of the dribble? How do you shoot? What's your defensive footwork? How do you handle screens? How do you block off on the boards? And for two and a half hours, it's training over and over of the same thing, the fundamentals. But you know what would happen at the end of that? The games would start again, and we would click again. We'd be exactly where we needed to be because we'd gone back to the basics. Dr. Young, about three weeks ago, on his Mortification of the Sin series, stated that we've got to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. And what I'm suggesting to you, that there are times when you get in spiritual droughts where you need to get back to the basics of the gospel story and justification by faith declared righteousness you need to get back to that you need to have some scriptures or a book that which explains it that you can go back to and in a sense be retrained or remember again just how beautiful and just how wonderful this gospel and justification is justification being declared righteous it is one doctrinal position That you ought to fall in love with. And maybe I didn't do a good job. Of presenting it tonight. But don't give up with me. Study it. Read it. Come to know just how wonderful. Your gospel and justification is. Father we thank you. That you have presented. A full gospel to us. And that we can fall in love with it again. And again. And review it again and again. And go back to the fundamentals again and again. So that we might be witnesses and testimonies for you. Lord, I pray you spark some interest in in the hearts of those who are here tonight that will cause them to study, to show themselves to be approved, to continue to be students of the good news of the gospel so that they might share that with those that they come in contact with until Jesus comes. And it's in his name we pray.